Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. And this week we have a special podcast with renowned lawyer and academic Anthony Julius to explore the character of Abraham. Anthony, a huge welcome to you. You need little introduction, but of course you hold the chair in law and arts at UCL. You're deputy chairman of Mishkon Derea, author of many books, including Trials of the Diaspora, a history of anti-Semitism in England. A huge welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you, Simon. It's really, we've known each other for decades and you're an esteemed and dear friend of my own children. So it's a pleasure for me to be on this show. That very kind. And I know that I think you're writing a book on Abraham. Maybe a good place to start, just how that came to be and what's your interest? I'm writing the book as a contribution to a series that has the name Yale Jewish Lives. It's published by Yale University Press. The editors of the series are the historians Steve Zipperstein and Anita Shapiro. Steve is, I'm sure, well known to many of your listeners as a perhaps the preeminent historian of Central and East European Jewry and of the biography of Achaz Chaam and so on. And Anita Shapiro is a very important Israeli historian, historian of Zionism, Israel's history. So they are the editors and the series runs from titles in biblical times. By Viva Zornberg, for example, has written the biography. Moses, I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it goes all the way to 19th, 20th century, 21st century. There are biographies of Freud, Trotsky, Marx, of Mark Rothko, biography of Barbara Streisand. Production values are very high. The books are rather handsome. And of course, having a series like that appeals to the collector in all of us. So there are about 40 or 50 titles. And I'm writing the biography in a way. It's the opening bookmark of the series because it's the biography of Abraham. Why am I writing it? I'm not a Bible scholar. That's not my specialist area of academic interest or expertise. But I have been preoccupied, certainly continuously engaged with and puzzled by the story of the Arcada, the Binding of Isaac. That bit in Abraham's life when he is instructed in a vision to take his son and sacrifice him, and he does it, but just before he completes the act, he's told to desist, and a ram is substituted for the for Isaac as the, the object of the sacrifice. It's the most extraordinary story. Perhaps it's foundationally the most extraordinary story in our history. How could one not be? interested in that. But the opportunity to put that in the context of Abraham's life as a whole, that's that was a that called for a different take on the subject. And so when in discussion with uh, with Steve, the the possibility of me writing the biography of Abraham came up, I absolutely seized it. And just stepping back a little bit, but in your in your investigations, do you see Abraham as a literary construction, or is it possible life there itself that you see? So I treat Abraham as the, uh, not controversially, as the foundational figure in the Jewish life and history. And I don't, and I don't, because how could one? I don't ask, let alone investigate the question, was Abraham a living person? It's sufficient for me 
that he has this status in in our spiritual religious even lives i proceed from there and the way in which i've constructed this is to treat the text in the torah the text in genesis as the so to speak the first level of the available material. And then I add to that the material in the binically compiled stories of his life, which are part of that broader genre of Jewish writing called Midra. I also take into account the other rabbis' investigations of Abraham, which are recorded in the Talmud. And I also look at some of the Kabbalistic thinking about Abraham and Abraham's standing. I take a broad view of this material, but I don't just set it all out. What I do is I use it to inform my own understanding of Abraham, which is a, a little aslant to that to that kind of received rabbinic tradition. So maybe I should just explain what my take is. Look forward very much to that, and perhaps I'm picking suddenly from the Torah's perspective. It seems that there are at least two Abrahams. One who challenges God, is resilient through and through, doesn't wait for God's instruction at all. And then there's the Akeda, which is completely the opposite. So that's an understanding of Abraham by reference to his discussions with God about the future of Sodom and Gomorrah on the one hand, and the kind of submissiveness of Abraham in relation to the Arcadia and the sun, that throws up the immediate question, why would he work so hard to save strangers and yet be so ready to collude in the death of his own son? So that's a very familiar crux, and it's a serious one. But for me, the the take that I have on Abraham and on the two Abrahams is more fundamental than that. So my two Abrahams are the Abraham of the Torah, that's to say the Abraham who first appears answering the direction from God, go, lech lecha, leave. And the Abraham, he's already, what, 70 in the story at that point. And the Abraham before that moment, whose life is the subject of various Midrashic stories, that, so I, I regard that Abraham, and let's just in shorthand call him Abraham one, as the interesting contrast to the Abraham of the Torah. And the Sodom and Gomorrah and Arcada episodes are episodes, therefore, within the second Abraham's life, rather than setting up a contrast. So why do I see Abraham one and Abraham two so differently? The first Abraham is the Abraham who was born into a pagan society, takes a leading position. He's a, in his adult years, he's a person who is fully inward with the the pagan cult with the, the Chaldean science of the stars and so on. But then, because he's a reflective and thoughtful person, a self-interrogating person, he reasons his way away from the given religion, the polytheistic religion, into a position of a kind of strict but rather abstract monarchy. It's not the stars, the sun, the moon that rule us. It is a single divinity. But the relationship between that divinity and humankind, this is still opaque to Abraham. Armed with this conception of a kind of abstract, a single 
today uh, a kind of we might say a sort of 18th century notion of a watchmaker deity who just constructs the universe and then lets it tick according to its own rules he he then preaches this conception to to the residents of of book and it causes great distress and disruption he provokes very considerable antagonism by the mocking satirical way that he treats the receive religion and in fact is also immensely disrespectful to his father terach and in a very well known story he breaks his father's idols this prompts terach to go to nimrod who is the ruler of urkastin and Tarak says I don't know what to do with my son I can't control him he's causing tremendous grief for my family he's behaving in a most disruptive and disrespectful way can you call him in and so to speak tell him what's what so Nimrod calls in Abraham they have some angry exchanges Abraham takes just the same kind of mocking stance towards Nimrod that he did towards his own father and towards his so to speak co-citizens Nimrod, exasperated and angered by this disrespect, condemns Abraham to death, throws him into a space which serves as a furnace. Now, at this point, one can either tell the story naturalistically or supernaturalistically. Either there is a divine intervention or a human intervention. In the furnace, before the flames are stoked up, Abraham looks heavenward and for the first time he prays he doesn't know whether his prayers will be answered because on his understanding of the divinity god is a is a disengaged impersonal originating force not a personal god who's interested in humankind he doesn't know and the prayer is the kind of desperate appeal of a man who is contemplating his imminent incineration so he makes this he offers up this prayer and it is then answered now he understands that it's answered by god at the same time terach is pleading with nimrod when i brought my son to you it was for a rebuke not for a death sentence and they resolve that if terach will leave urkastin with Abraham then the death sentence can be commuted to banishment so Abraham leaves on one view courtesy of his father's intercession on another view as a result of a miracle he understands it to be a miracle and so he reformulates his belief in god as a belief in a personal and benevolent god who is interested in humankind and will so to speak intervene when when it risks suffering and he leaves with his father and his family and he goes from urkastin to haran and it's in haran that the torah story begins so he is already at that point abraham too he's not the pagan abraham who reasons his way into a belief in an abstract deity a kind of oppositionist intellectual rather abraham too the man of faith the person who believes he has a personal relationship with god and who is engaged not in seeking to persuade pagans to think for themselves but rather to convert pagans into followers of 
God on his new understanding. And that is the history of Abraham through the Torah until the Arcada, because with the instruction to sacrifice his own son, this is the is so to speak the opposite of the moment in the furnace, because here he has once again to reformulate his understanding of God, no longer an impersonal God but a personal one. That's the moment of the furnace, but at the Arcada, no longer a benevolent personal God but rather a personal God who is ready to inflict unjustified, inexplicable suffering, not just on Abraham, but also on members of Abraham's family, on Isaac, of course, and also on Sarah. Now, I don't think that Abraham, too, survives that challenge to his understanding. And so the way I read the Arcada is as a moment of unresolved crisis at the foundational moment in Judaism's history. We cannot think of God as merely an abstract entity uninterested in us. We would like to think of God um, as an involved God who cares for us and protects us. But the Arcada teaches us that we cannot rely on him. And that sense that we cannot rely on him, that the course taken by our own lives is one which is not, so to speak, protected and cushioned by God's continuing interest, is Abraham's legacy to Judaism. And of course, it's a very familiar experience for Jews in every generation to suffer this kind of despair as they confront a suffering which is without any redeeming resolution. That's my, that's the thesis of the book, which I argue 90,000 words with a lot of detail and a subsidiary argument. Thank you for sharing the thesis of the book. What do you see as the kind of continuity between Abraham 1 and Abraham 2? I think that the continuity, first of all, I, it's a radical discontinuity, but, the, but Abraham 1 and Abraham 2 are themselves they represent in a bounded way the two positions that Jews can take within Judaism. Skeptical, inquiring, challenging, and always regarding their views as provisional and subject to revision. That's Abraham 1. Or submissive to external authority, uh, and engaged in projects understood to be directed by the Almighty. That's Abraham too. And I think we, re if we reflect on our understanding of Jewish history and Jewish character types and so on, those two character types, the way I've described Abraham 1 and 2, th those character types resonate, I think, with us in, in the way in which we think about options within Judaism. And some people may say, actually, if those are the character types, then as a Jew, I'm more an Abraham one than an Abraham two or the other way. I was going to say that there's this rabbinic idea that the character of Abraham and the trials, tribulations that he and Sarah go through very much prefigure both the Exodus and in a way, so much of Jewish history 
two and you've then connected the two types that no doubt wrestle throughout history what they were not following through on the akeda does that come from without or within you mean you mean abraham's what i understand to be abraham's failure in relation to the akeda or yes. the fact yes. that, that abraham is told not to sacrifice his son Yes. And on the right. second, there, there's a kind of recuperative or kind of benign reading of the story, which is God tested Abraham. Abraham passed the test. God was never interested in the death of Abraham. He just wanted to know what kind of servant Abraham was. And then, the, in other words, it's a kind of precursor to the Job story. So Satan has a bet with Job. Job will, will curse you. Uh, sorry, Satan has a bet with God in relation to Job. Job will curse you, God, if you d- deny him all the creature comforts and property and pleasures and so on that he enjoys. And it doesn't happen. And Job has all his pose- material possessions and wealth, health and so on, restored to him, double fox. So then it's fully a test and there are no nasty uh, uh, after effects. And that's how we tend to read the Arcada. But of course, it's not true in relation to the Arcada. So if we ask ourselves, what are the catastrophic after effects that are not erased once Abraham supposedly passes the test, we can identify them into three categories in relation to the, the three members of the family. Abraham himself, I think, as a father, cannot overcome the knowledge that he was ready to sacrifice his own son. That's not the kind of self-discovery which one can ever get past, I think, as a father. Isaac knows that his father was ready to kill him, to deceive him and to kill him. So Isaac knows that in extremis at any rate, his father is not a person on whom he can rely. That is also knowledge that one, as a son, cannot overcome. And Sarah knows that she's married to someone who is ready to do this without even any reference to her. He sneaks out early in the morning, so Sarah doesn't know. What Abraham has done is so destructive, of the irreversibly destructive of family, that in no sense... Can you understand his, so to speak, post-Arcada position as comparable to Job? And therefore, the damage that God did by this test is itself irreparable. So that's my take on it. By the time the ram is substituted for Isaac, all the damage that I've described has been done. Anthony, there's so much there, and we very much look forward to the book. When, when is that? When is that due? I have to finish the manuscript by December 23, and I suppose the book itself will be published December 24. I think you've suddenly planted a seed for the future, and perhaps you would be so good as to come back and look forward to exploring ever further but this has been wonderful to plant plenty of seeds and certainly wonderful within this sequence of Torah reading as we come to the end of the Abraham story and this current that we revisit again with you. Great to be on your show Simon and all the very best to you. Anthony thank you so much look forward to having you back. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, then do please tune in to Further Between the Lines podcasts. And we very much look forward to meeting again next week. Do also check out Further on JewishQuest.org for lots more material. Thank you all for joining.